welcome to Streams of Progress, where we bring you weekly conversations with many of the UAE's prominent leaders and thinkers. Each of our guests are actively contributing to the vitality of the UAE community and economy. Our goal on the podcast is to inspire you to drive progress in your professional and personal life. Hey everyone, this is Madron, and today on Streams of Progress, I sat down with Mohamed Shabib, one of Dubai's most active serial entrepreneurs. We covered a lot with Mohamed in this episode, starting from his early days briefly working at corporates, to launching his first startup back in Germany. Then we transitioned to his consulting days at McKinsey, which eventually led him to this region, and Sukar, where he led Sukar's exit to Sukh.com. Then we took a quick look at his auto, before going into his last successful venture, Tajawal. He shared a lot of great insights for all entrepreneurs out there. So join us as we dive into the conversation. So today we're sitting down with Mohamed Shabib, the founder and ex-CEO of Tajawal. Uh, thank you for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So you actually have a very long and multiple branches in your story, in your ventures background and everything you've done. So let's just start at the very beginning. Can you tell us a bit about your background? Um, uh, I was very... Uh privileged to be born and raised in Germany, not in the Middle East. So my parents are both Syrians, but left Syria at the age of, I think, 16, 17, both of them, with 10 years difference, came to Germany, my dad in the 60s, my mom early 70s, uh, born and raised there. So I would say I'm, I'm German with Arabic blood, but the brain functions in German pretty much, or the heart functions at like in, in Arab. I wouldn't even say Syrian because I've never been there, but like in Arab, yeah. So you grew up in Germany? Yes. Education, everything? My uh, school education was Germany. University education was Germany, Manchester, and Paris. Uh, graduated, oh my God, I can't say that, literally 20 years ago <laughs> <laughs> in Germany from a business school, which is at, at that time it was one of the first, if not the first, private business schools in Germany. We don't have the concept such as Harvard or, or LBS or something like that. Um, so it was a kind of a pioneer and I think uh, going to that business school paved the way uh, in the following years then for me. Correct me if I'm wrong. Was it straight after your graduation when you got your first offer to join a startup? Um, not really. So half a year before graduating, we had all these interview series. Everyone would come to business school. And I accepted, I think, my first job offer, which back then was Procter & Gamble. I thought I'd be a marketeer for the rest of my life. Um, don't ask me why, but I joined Procter & Gamble. Uh, was assistant brand manager on a super exciting deodorant product. Um, and I resigned after four weeks. Um, stayed there for eight weeks in total. Then when I left, I joined uh, SAP. I joined SAP then because it was uh, kind of a combination between business and IT. It was SAP consulting. And I spoke technical language or technology language and uh, I studied business. So I thought I would combine it and be able to translate between the two worlds. Joined that. And then my friend Oliver Zumber, um, the founder of Rocket Internet, created his first uh, online startup. We had a couple of discussions about that. I witnessed the whole story, um, how he created a business, uh, copy-pasted a U.S. concept in Germany, and sold it after 100 days, I think, for close to $60 million. Um, and I think the day he called me and told me that he sold... I resigned from my... Uh, Your next job? Yeah, I think it was, de facto, I think SAP was my first job. Procter was a joke for me, at least. Great company, but not for me. Um, I resigned, actually, and then started looking at concepts in the U.S. that I could replicate to make a lot of money in a very short period of time. And that led to your first startup, or what was that? That was my first startup then. And the first startup, it was called Portax. Portax. It's a super creative name, Portal Access. So what was it? It was a B2B procurement platform for the European plastics processing and molding industry. Yes. <laughs> I was super passionate about the industry. The average age in the industry back then was, I think, 58. I think today the average age in this very same industry is 75. It's um, the same people then. <laughs> it was a concept, actually, we copied from a US-based company. I don't even remember the name, but um, we thought that we would do it quickly. And uh, I thought we would do it quickly and sell, like my friend did, and be rich and then stop working. Yeah. I guess at the age of 24, 25, uh, that's the level of stupidity you reach. So entering that industry, did you start attending conferences, yeah, yeah, events? Yeah, of course. It was fun. Um, I remember, I remember um, 
attending this uh, conference, I think there was 2,500 or 3,000 delegates. Uh, I think it was in Singapore, if I remember correctly. It's a long time ago. Um, so uh, I had to speak at this event, and obviously I didn't prepare anything. Um, I remember I was there. I had my, my title slide and my agenda slide and nothing else. And I was watching these people, and I really felt that they were all either dead or asleep. And uh, I, I didn't connect Like when you go on stage and you feel that your audience is already sleeping and you were one of the first speakers of the day, you get nervous. And especially when you don't have a presentation. <laughs> um, but I somehow wiggled my way through, shut down the laptop after the title slide and said, let's talk real life. And uh, we talked about uh, the tech industry and the internet businesses. And somehow I managed to turn them around and excite those guys. So you actually woke them up? I woke them up, yes. <laughs> so I take it that wasn't that successful a venture? Um, so that's, that's what made me think, actually. This venture made me think at one point, but probably five, six years later. What is success? We successfully raised funding three times. Um, we hired 45 people, I think, in total. We pivoted our business from a model that did not work to a model that worked. Um, we actually declared bankruptcy in the middle of it because a trade sale, which was supposed to happen for 25 million euros, was called off literally the day we had to sign in the notary public. Um, we went to bankruptcy to actually, I, I can't say that now, I think 20 years later I can, I can do it. Uh, we got rid of our old shareholders that were not good enough anymore and continued with the business, raised a new funding round, continued with the business with the pivot. And then we still had enough money when we sold the technology that we had, but we had money on the account, we had about, I think about two million still on the account, but we believed that we were not able to raise further funding in the midst of the uh, first internet bubble burst. And literally on September 11, 2001, in the morning European time, we sold the business, came out of the notary public and saw that the Twin Towers were attacked. So we were quite lucky to get out of the business. So when you ask me about success, I think it was a successful learning experience, yes. Uh, financially, if I compare myself to others during that period and my team and my team and I got, got out of uh, that venture with a black eye, um, but others were really, really bad and, and, and worse off uh, than us. So it was a good thing. Also, all our employees that we had hired, we managed to get them jobs elsewhere and then shut down the, the business or, or sold the technology and shut down the business in a very clean way. I still, I still own the first... The first chair that I bought for my first business, I took it with me. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. It's a Herman Miller Aeron chair, one of these famous things. And I kept it and I still have it. I sit on it every day. Yes. I repaired it. Not I repaired I maintained it last month. Um, but it, it, I kept it on purpose because it reminds me of the early days. It reminds me of what it meant. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> 20 years. So it's well maintained at least. Um, now, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now. And after that, you went into consulting. Is that right? No. No. So 2001, I left, uh, or we shut down Portax after we sold the technology and got a little bit of money back for our investors. Um, I had a couple of job offers. We were four co-founders. Uh, the three others went to jobs. I had a couple of job offers, but decided not to do it. I didn't feel that I would be able to work for a company like Bayer or Lufthansa or whatever, like German large corporate. And stayed, stayed in a... In a uh, in a freelance capacity, consulting with various startups on one hand, advising them. And the second thing is I was advising large, scale, large comp corporates in digital transformation projects, especially centered around procurement, because that's what we had built with, the, with Portax. And I've done that. One of those projects actually in 2003 took me to Dubai. It's the first time actually I, went, uh, I came here and visited Jitex. And so Jitex 2003 was my first trip and, uh, to Dubai. And I, I took a project here, uh, stayed here for about eight months, staying in the Emirates Towers Hotel, not the worst place to be. Um, and one of these days, I was at the pool and I ran into a guy that graduated from my business school one year before me. And he's like, hey, man, um, what are you doing? why don't you come and join McKinsey? We're looking for people like you. And uh, I literally fell off my chair back then laughing. I told him, man, I'm no McKinsey material. I can't, no, no. <laughs> I, I never even attended the free dinners they offered in our university because I felt this is not my culture. This is not what I want to be. 
And he told me, don't be this judgmental. Just come and spend an office Thursday in the office here. The office here is different from the office in Germany. It's nice, actually. Um, I didn't know what this meant, but I went to the office. And uh, I was so excited uh, that I gave them my CV and got invited to, I think, six, no, seven interviews, I think, in total. And got a job offer. And then... And then How long them. did you stay with them? Yeah, I, I joined them. Actually, then I moved permanently to Dubai in 2004 and stayed with McKinsey until end of 2010. In between, I, I was basically, I joined, so one of my clients actually asked me to join them in between. So continued a project uh, which was supposed to, to just last for four months for me. I think overall I lasted there for almost three years because the client wanted me actually to implement what, what we were doing. Um, but end-to-end, it was 2004 till end of 2010 with McKinsey. In Germany and in Dubai. So I transferred back in 2007. Back and forth. In 2007, I transferred back. Uh, I transferred to the German office. I wanted to test whether I survived there. I can survive there. And I did, actually. Um, and stayed there until the end of 2010. Do you feel there was any learning you took from McKinsey to your later startup ventures? We'll get into those, but... What Look, I, th- I think it, I joined McKinsey as an experience, what they call experience hire, right? And uh, if I look back at my life um, from university and before university even until I joined McKinsey, I was always the, the, the sharpest guy in the room, always the fastest, always the guy that pushed things, pushed people and things. Um, but I think I came to a point where I started questioning myself whether my, this is the life I want to lead until, until the rest of it. And I felt that I, uh, I didn't progress. It was as simple as that. I just felt that the last three, four years before joining McKinsey, I was just standing still. Intellectually, I've, I've not been challenged. And I wanted to go to an environment where I'd be challenged and I don't get bored. And uh, I didn't find that in any large corporate that I worked for as a consultant or as a freelance consultant. And then when I did these six interviews with McKinsey, I remember I got out of these interviews every time I got out of it. It's always pairs of interviews, so two, two, two. I got out of each uh, double-decker, and I was done. Like I was so drained mentally. It was so challenging. And the people that I was sitting with in, in one room were just like so 100 times smarter than me um, that I felt it was the right place to join. So you like to be in a room surrounded by smarter people? Of course, especially people that tell me how stupid I am when I say stupid things. So from McKinsey, you ventured back into the startup space again? Yeah, so I left McKinsey. I probably would still be in McKinsey if I didn't have uh, a serious problem with my back. So I had four slip discs in 2010. The first time ever in my life I was, uh, I was on sick leave, a concept that I didn't know before, but it literally didn't work. Actually, when I got my four slip discs, I uh, went to the doctor, got like, I don't know what treatment, and uh, the doctor was telling me to be off for at least three, four months. I returned to my next McKinsey project after six weeks. And uh, four weeks after that, I remember I had a steering committee meeting. I woke up that morning. It was a project in Beirut, actually. I woke up that morning, um, touched my legs, and I, I, it was numb. And uh, so I did, but I was a good McKinsey. So I went... Uh, I went to the steering committee meeting with the chairman of this bank. You still went? Of course. <laughs> Did the steering committee, got out of the steering committee meeting, Look at the senior partner that was with me, who happened to be my mentor back then, amazing guy. And I was like, hey, man, this, this was my last meeting with the firm. And uh, he understood immediately. He was super supportive of anything. Smoothened the exit. And uh, it, was, it was really a great experience. I think that's something also that was a lesson for life. Um, the onboarding process, the interview and onboarding process at McKinsey was the best thing I've seen until today in terms of filtering people to really match the culture that you want, challenging them. And then the onboarding itself, when you actually join your first week, your first month, it was uh, unparalleled until today. But what was even better was the exit process. It was so clean and so really respectful and so supportive um, and still today we have a relationship. Like they call me from time to time, different people. Um, the alumni network that we have is really powerful. So that was something that was, I think, a lesson for life. So whenever I face a situation where as an entrepreneur, I have people who want to leave me or they have to leave for whatever reason, um, the way we treat them during that phase, I think, uh, plays a very, very significant role in, our, in, in terms of our culture. So it's just 
the talent acquisition and even the churn when when they're leaving yeah maintaining that yes. relationship it needs to be the support. same level it needs to be the same standard the acquisition of talent as well as the uh the exit process of the talents but yeah i've uh, i uh, i had four slip discs in 2010 and decided that it's time to do something else and the reason i mean you can try to find reasons for this uh, disease or sickness. And I thought it was a combination of having to stay in hotel beds that are not good enough. Usually in, in, in a team room setting at a client, you get the worst rooms with the worst chairs with the worst desks because you're just temporary people. And you fly around the world too much with all these vibrational flights. This is not helpful. And you don't have time to do good stuff like exercising, etc. Very little, right? So... Um, when I decided that I would leave, uh, it was funny. I got a call from an investor who found me on LinkedIn. I think what he typed in LinkedIn back then was um, my business school's name, which is VHU uh, in Germany. He typed uh, Arabic. He typed uh, Dubai. And I think he typed uh, founder or entrepreneur, something like that. A combination <laughs> of four things. And I was the only name that appeared. The only one in the The search. only one. <laughs> so I remember he messaged me, hey, I am, uh, we have a startup in Dubai that is very well funded. Um, and we are looking for a new CEO. Are you interested? Then we had a conversation on Skype, I remember. And uh, a couple of months later, I joined and took over Sukkar.com. And how long were you with Sukkar? Because I know they're actually kind of successful in terms of they were acquired by Sukh. They had yeah. a good exit. How long were you with them? I was, I, uh, I think I joined beginning of 2011. So in December 2010, I already started reaching out. Uh, January 2011, I then uh, joined, took over the CEO role from the founder. And then the founder and I were basically the, the team running the company. Um, and we sold the business in the first half of 2012 then to Sukh. We exited Souk um, for different reasons. A, I didn't believe that the business model by itself is sustainable in the long run without a larger play. B, I didn't believe we would be able to fundraise in the region. It was even tougher than today. And C, that was my strategy from day one, to be uh, perfectly honest. Uh, I wanted to get out of consulting, back into the startup scene in the Middle East, um, and I needed an exit story to get some visibility. Um, it's like that first win in the region. And that was basically what, what basically proved that, you know, we could scale it. And we scaled it very well. When I took it over, I think we were at $200,000 uh, monthly, monthly sales. When we sold it to Suku, we were around $2 million monthly sales within a year. Well, there must have been something for them to want it, to... It was 10x. And back then, yeah. we were the same size as Suk. So Suk was 160, 165 people. We were 130, 135 so, and monthly revenues of soup back then, or monthly sales was 2.5 million. We were at 2. So it could have looked like a threat, actually, in terms of the, um, the speed you were coming Yeah, I think, I think we, 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 would not, we, we wouldn't have a chance against Souk simply for one reason, because Souk's business model was fundable. Our business model, we were a guild.com clone. Yes. That was not fundable. But a marketplace concept like Amazon was fundable back then already. And, uh, and time proved us right. Like they, they were able to raise funding. And then exited to uh, to Amazon. And from there, you moved on to the design one, right? Is that this auto? Is that the next one? Or was there something yeah. in between? No, no, no. That was the next one. So basically, what I then did, I exited Souk. Uh, we did a transition phase. And then uh, I exited Souk, raised funding for a startup, uh, which, is, which was uh, aimed at bringing unbranded, unknown design items, home accessory design items to the Middle East. Was mainly. it a bit like Fab in the US? Fab was our big, big thing. I met the Fab guys, actually. Oh, okay. um, we had also investors that funded a startup that was acquired by Fab in Europe. Um, and I wanted to bring this concept to the Middle East because what I never understood is everyone here in the region is a brand victim of these like super known brands, right? Yeah. It's, if it's not Gucci, DKNY, Fendi, blah, 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 no one buys it. So... I thought there were so many nice things around this local talented brands or re region with local talents, also internationally, super nice things that you wouldn't find in the standard household shops uh, here. And we would bring them to people. We figured very quickly, i.e. within six months, that this doesn't fly unless you have branded products. I mean, people would prefer buying an Esprit watch on our platform rather than some really super cool thing that is award winning, that gets even red dot design awards and, and they wouldn't buy it. 
right? Um, so you had red dot designer for winning products. Yeah. And people still gravitated to a brand they recognized. An Esprit watch made in China with the brand put on it, like on a white label product. Yes. So we pivoted away from that. And that was actually a decisive moment for me. So um, we, I wanted to do something I'm truly passionate about. Right? And uh, the first thing was this design stuff. I would say this was 50% passion, but also 50% inspired by the story of my investors that they could sell this to Fab. And uh, so I said, look, I want to go to a segment where we are unique. And this segment we found was Islamic fashion. So we twisted the company. It was the same entity, the same investors, raised further funding, and then moved to become an Islamic fashion label. Um, we hired designers. We created a small factory in Alcoz, actually, here in Dubai. And we started designing our first collection, sold it, second collection, third collection, fourth collection. And uh, it, was, it was a pretty successful business model. The gross margins on the product were about um, 80%. Um, so pretty good uh, And that was stuff. still being manufactured here. It 80%. was still here. So we didn't optimize costs yet. 95% of our sales was in the U.S., in the U.K., and in Germany. So there was a big demand. It was made to measure. So if a lady, a hijabi lady in, in San Francisco would order today, uh, two days later it would be with her. It but custom made? Like custom made, made according to her measures. And the return rate was extremely low. Everything was really very nice. Um, we had very good visibility in this scene around the globe. The blogosphere was, was very positive about us. Uh, and it's such a niche. It's a niche. Back then it was a very, very new thing to do. And... Uh, The only problem was that finding an investment or finding investors here in the region was super tough. It, it started with Desado. When I funded Desado, I was in the Middle East after I exited Souk. I was trying to fundraise here in the region for four to six months. And if you think about the story, it's an Arabic speaker, born and raised in the West, studied at the Harvard of Germany, um, created his first startup, exited in, in Germany, joined McKinsey in the Middle East and Germany, exited McKinsey, took over a startup as a CEO, scaled it, sold it to Souk. You had all ingredients, actually, for being successful. And yet, six months roughly, and I couldn't raise funding here in the region. Everyone would tell you the same. And I, I'm not going to mention all these names of the, of the nice VCs here in the region and, and angels here. But at the end of the day, what happened is everyone said, yeah, great, great, but you know, find a lead investor and we follow. So basically, they don't, they, they're not willing to take risks. And uh, what I had learned in the past was that venture capitalists are risk takers, risk investors. They turn out to be risk averse investors here in the region. And uh, so I resorted to, to my old network, called a couple of guys. Literally, it was a couple of calls of people that I met throughout my life, investors. And within, I think, four weeks after I, I, I switched back to Europe, I was able to raise sufficient funding. For the venture here? For the venture here. And guess what? Everyone else that was... Uh, not ready to fund and take the risk, all of a sudden they were lined up and they were ready to invest. So we took on investors that, uh, for the Zado, then we pivoted, took on more investors. The problem was that the structure, the shareholder structure was not uh, supportive then of, uh, of, of the entrepreneurs um, as well as for further fundraising, it made it just more difficult, right? And I had raised then another funding round which would have probably taken us to profitability, But uh, was not uh, like we were. We were literally in the face to close at Notary Public, but decided then to not do it um, and wind down the company. Um, and that's an, a learning also for life. You need to make sure as an entrepreneur that your investor structure is the right structure. You need to have people that follow your vision, people that support you no matter what, and people that are willing to go overboard really to help you grow your business. Right when you sit in a in a board meeting and Some, uh, some investor here from the region takes a piece of paper and writes on it. The board here with asks the entrepreneur, no, uh, uh, the entrepreneur is herewith requested by the board to da -da 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 -da, and then they hand it over to you during a meeting with some really silly stuff, then uh, you know you're sitting in the wrong, uh, in the wrong room. And I think uh, we got to a point where, where I felt it doesn't, it doesn't help the new investors if, the, if I bring them Into that environment. Uh, into that environment. And I, didn't, I, felt, I felt it's my obligation to, to just do something else. And uh, that's, that's basically when we stopped working on Citra style. 
And Citra Style was a, a venture I co-founded with my wife. Basically, when we pivoted Desado. Okay. Um, so she was. So the name changed. Yeah, we changed the name. It became Citra Style for for Muslim fashion, and my wife basically was the brain and heart behind the business, and and I was the execution machine. Um, and we had a team, obviously, that was amazing. So I know a lot of entrepreneurs will ask the question. Specifically, you're saying it was a UA-based startup. How did you go about the legal structuring in terms of what kind of registration did you do for that venture? Oh, that's a mess. That's really a mess here. Now, why is it a mess? It's a mess because you just don't know what is possible. No one tells you what is possible. If, if you ask five people, they give you five different versions. And there's absolutely no clarity, right? Plus, if you're here in, in this country, you have the different Emirates with different offerings, right? This, this is different. So what I had done back then is I had a free zone company in, I think, the safe zone, Sharjah Airport International Free Zone. And that was a 49% owner in a local company, on a mainland company in Dubai. And we had a 51% sponsor that someone brought on board for me. Um, and why did we do that? We felt that it's... And the holding company was a BVI company. Oh, so you so did the, have a holding BVI? The holding company was holding the shares in the Sharjah Free Zone company. So the investors would go into the BVI. So that's where the investor, because how would you structure that here? Now, would I do it again this way? I don't know, to be honest. I'm now in the process of creating a new business, and I'm back to literally five, six years ago. I still don't know what is possible here. You read all about, you know, we're enabling um, entrepreneurship, and we're allowing 100% ownership, mainland, as as well as Free Zone, etc., BP. But when you go and ask uh, the economic department or when you ask people that should know, no one can tell you what is possible today. Um, so I'm stalling, to be honest, at the moment. I'm not, uh, I'm operating, um, I'm, I'm still figuring out which license to take. And uh, hopefully this will be clarified within the next two, three months. But um, my pref- and, and I'm still considering whether I should do it in Dubai or outside of Dubai. Because I, I have a feeling that... Uh, you mean maybe the BVI route again? Not the so. BVI route, overall setting up the company. We want to create a global business. And in order to be successful in a global setting, you have a couple of components that need to be in place. Right? And uh, these components are access to capital, um, a, a very healthy funding market, as well as a healthy exit market. Because without an exit opportunity, no one funds a business. right? Although I would not want to create it in order to exit Still, people look for exit opportunities when they fund a certain market. You need to have access to talents. And when, when you say talents, you need to have access to talents that can compete on a global scale. So you need to compare yourself, not with the region, you need to compare yourself with Berlin, London, uh, Silicon Valley, New York, etc. Um, and, uh, and then you need to see cost-benefit, right? When you have a place where rents for offices and rents for people that want to work are so high and when cost of living is so high then you ask yourself is there any other place you see silicon valley now not even i'll take san francisco silicon valley people are starting to open up in in los angeles because it's cheaper than silicon valley right it's uh, it's crazy we have silicon beach over there now exactly right and that's uh, that's a development that you need to watch closely and you need to decide whether it makes sense to open up here so let's move on to your most recent venture that was Pretty successful. Tajawa. Yeah. If you can go over how it got started. It's a different approach to creating a startup. I think I have, uh, it was in 2015, and I had two major experiences as an entrepreneur until then, um, or as as a professional until then. The first one was I worked heavily in my capacity as a consultant for McKinsey and outside of McKinsey. I worked heavily on digital transformation programs. And uh, the second thing is I worked on entrepreneurship projects in the Middle East. Um, the first one, digital transformation programs for large corporates. I think the, the critical learnings that I made there was two things. One, if you did that with large consultancies, large technical consultancy houses, and I'm not going to blame anyone here, but we're thinking Accenture, IBM Consulting, PwC, you name them all these guys that promise you the world for a couple of hundred million dollars. Um, and if you make this part of your existing organization, so you transform from within, you're bound to fail. 
because of various reasons in terms of culture, in terms of not aligned interests, not aligned visions, etc. That's the first learning I made in, in my previous life. The second thing is when you do venturing in the, in the Middle East, the likelihood of success is very, very low given the bad funding environment. Right? If you want to do e-commerce, any type of commerce online, um, you have to have sufficient funding. Right? And it starts with seed funding. You, you, probably very easily you get two hundred to $500,000 funded by friends and family, some rich dude, uh, some supportive businesswoman. Whatever you find, you will find some cash if you're not, if you're not one of those cases that people don't believe in as a person. Um, but then very quickly when you look out for series A, B, C, D, you see that this region doesn't have a structured in a, a good enough infrastructure for fundraising for later rounds. Uh, when it's in, in the area of one to three, four million, I think there's a lot that has been done recently, but then the one gets above five million, it's tough, right? Um, a lot of money is taken out of this region and invested elsewhere, primarily in real estate or tech companies outside, um, but not put back in this ecosystem. So with these two learnings, I had the opportunity to meet with the group CEO of Altayar Group. Altayar, if, if you don't know, is the largest travel agency in the Middle East, listed on the Saudi stock market. Um, back then, they had a new CEO who, uh, who was a young uh, Saudi man, um, Abdullah Daoud. Uh, I met with him, and he, he shared his vision of taking the company that is uh, pretty successful in its own terms, um, pretty big, multi-billion dollar business, but completely offline, take it to the digital age. And it was a larger vision. And part of this vision was to create an online travel agency. Yeah? And we had a couple of discussions over, I think, a period of four weeks. And uh, I made it very clear that you need sufficient funding in order to be successful. That was one of the conditions. Second condition was it needs to be an independent entity that is completely shielded against any pull from the corporate world. And the third thing is that, you know, when we do the, if in, in case we did that, we would have to have a degree of freedom that is uh, that is exactly the same as in any startup that is funded by a venture capital investor. I.e., there's a business plan, you agree on the business plan, there's a board that you report to, but the day-to-day -day execution is basically up to us. And uh, the group CEO was extremely, or was wise enough to understand that that's the only way to be successful in the beginning because he will not be able to shift the culture of an existing dinosaur um, with a tradition of three decades of, of doing business in a very, very traditional, uh, I would, from today's I would say, awkward way. Well, I um, think you pitched him well as well. You laid it out for him. No, I didn't well. need to pitch. That's actually what made me feel comfortable. I didn't need to pitch. The, 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 Abdullah, Abdullah Dawood understood from the first second we interacted. He's one of the smartest guys I've met here in the region, actually, who's from the region. And that, that made the journey actually what it was at the end of the day, a pretty successful journey. We, we were able together. We, we, first of all, we built a very good relationship, a very trust-based relationship, relationship. Second, um, it was a relationship of support. Um, when needed. It was not a relationship of interference or forcing you to do stuff you're not convinced of. No, it was, it was very respectful and it was very supportive. And I think this is what made us successful at the end of the day. And once you got the blessings to start this, how did you go about building your team? Because I know you actually tapped into someone you knew before. So as part of my... Uh, my list of things that needed to be in place before starting this business. And one of them was my co-founder and CTO. He was back then, he was in Germany. Um, I had hired him in 2012 for Desado. And he was so good that he was poached by Rocket Internet, actually, in Germany, and then moved within Germany to another place. He's Egyptian, uh, an Egyptian national, but uh, grew up in Saudi. I'm, I said, look, I need to convince this guy, otherwise this is not possible. And I managed to convince him. He even gave up uh, a potential residency in Europe, permanent residency in the European Union, um, to just come and do this project. And together we built this. I think uh, this was the, the two... The, the most important factors, I think, for this business was having a tech guy that is probably one of the best tech guys in this region. And the second thing is has to have sufficient funding and backing by a corporate from within the industry. So a strategic investor, a strategic owner... 
um, played a, a, a good role and the tech part played a even more important role. And how has your growth been since initially launching 2015? I remember coming to see your pre-fit out offices on Sheikh Zadra before <laughs> what became yeah. back when we first met. And I remember seeing the space and I'm like, whoa, you're going to be this big? So how did you go about from where you were in 2015 to where you are today? So 2015, look, with all this backing and with all the funding, I still decided that if we take an office, it will be something in Alco's warehouse style to not uh, portray the wrong image to the people that you will hire. Right? So we wanted consciously to be in a startup environment. Then one and a half years later, we had to move because we were just growing too fast um, and took an office on Sheikh Zayed Road, uh, in, in actually Um Sukhaim, Sheikh Zayed Road side, pretty fancy office. And we invested a lot in fitting it out, et cetera, PB. Um, the growth was just phenomenal, right? And um, we, we had not only this location, so we are we, the, the, what we call the Altayar online business unit, as it was called then, Further on, had two brands, Tajawal and Al Musafir, which I led. Um, and together we were a total of, we, it, it depends on season, but we were more than 1,000 people at the end. And uh, in four countries, we were, the majority was in Egypt and Cairo. We had then Dubai, we had Germany, Berlin, and we had uh, Saudi Arabia, Riyadh mainly. Um, more than 1,100 people, 1,200 people almost. Uh, that's massive. That's, that's pretty big, right? And uh, I can't disclose a lot of the details because it's a listed company at the end of the day and we need to, to uh, respect the reporting cycles. But cumulative, uh, what we call gross booking value, we generated almost a billion dollars within three years. And, uh, and that, that has not been done before. When I talk to investors in Silicon Valley, they all tell me, like, how do you do that like this? We haven't seen it from any other of the big boys around the globe. And... Uh, I think that's, that's something that we were very keen on. We wanted to prove that it's possible in the Middle East. It's possible to be done in the Middle East. It's possible to be done by Middle Easterns. And funded by Middle Easterns. And funded by Middle Easterns. And it's possible to be done on a level, on a quality level, that should not shy off from being compared to the likes of kayak or booking or et cetera. Right? And I think we've proven that. And uh, looking back, I think we, we can say nothing else than we're super proud of what we have achieved there. If you could just explain what the difference between Tajawal and Musafir was. Were they two separate entities? Al Musafir was a company that Altayar acquired while they were talking to me to join actually and build this. It was a startup in, in Saudi, a small startup in Saudi, which has been focusing on the booking.com model. Um, they acquired the company and then very, very uh, quickly after they've seen how we build technology and how we scale business, they asked us to take that over and then we created what we call the strategic business unit online and put the two brands under it. Obviously, we then did an exercise because at first sight, it didn't make sense. Um, but then we looked at the market. We did a lot of uh, analysis of this market in terms of segmentation study, a very in-depth segmentation study, understood that the market is big enough to have a set of brands and that could be positioned in different segments. And that's what we've done then at the end of the day. If you want to summarize it in a, in a very simple way, you would say, okay, Al Musafir is more focused on the Saudi traveler and Tajawal is more focused here on UAE and others. I think that's, that's safe to say. And the last question about Tajawal, what is your take on the growth of the travel industry for this region? I think we're still at the beginning. If you, if you look at the, the behavior and the behavioral changes that you can witness right now, like um, years ago, what you would see is people would travel over summer to London, to South France, to uh, Spain, and that's it. Like this, these are the key destinations. And then the typical weekend trip, Saudi to Dubai, etc. PP, right? Um, I think what you can witness now is that the new generation is very hungry to figure out where else they can go, to break out from what they have been doing in the last years with the families. And they look for new destinations. They look for new experiences. And I think um, being in a region where 50% of the population is, is below, I think, 25 or something like that, um, this just gives you a hint at what the future might look like, right? There's a lot of new destinations that are being explored. There's a lot of increase in desire to leave here and figure out how the world looks like um, and do something beyond Park Lane in London. Um, I think, I think uh, growth rate, and if you, if you take just what we call the transformation rate offline to online, here in this region and compared to any other region like uh, North America or Europe or Australia, you see that we still have to catch up uh, big time. 
So we're 30% behind that in, in terms of transformation rate. So just the transfer from offline to online will, will create probably $30 billion in the next uh, 10 years. Your previous ventures, you raised funding. This one was slightly different where you approached a corporate. I assume you did a feasibility an assessment and said, we will require this amount to get going and this is what we want to hit. Look, I think funding always depends on so many things, right? It depends on the situation. It depends on on uh, what access you have as a founding team, right? Um, I think we were very privileged and lucky to to having met the Altayar guys in a situation where there was a new CEO who was very, very visionary and was ready actually to take a risk that no one else would probably have taken. I don't know many people here in the region that would have taken the same risk, right? So he took a risk. He bet on a team like us, and he won. At the end of the day, he created a business unit that is... Uh, fundamental to the success of OPR in the future. The other thing is, if I raised funding today, what would I look at? I think it depends on the business model. So now I'm venturing into the Islamic space. So creating a, a, a the vision is to create a global brand targeting 2 billion Muslims in the travel space. The, what, is, what is a typical investor that you would address and, and target here, right? Um, all the Silicon Valley people don't understand the segment, right? People here maybe understand the target audience, but they don't understand that you can make money actually with this target audience. So you're stuck. <laughs> between two points. Uh, you're stuck between two points. So I'm back to where I was eight years ago, nine years ago. The only difference now is that we basically have a track record now that tells investors, look, this is a pretty low-risk investment. Right? You have a team that has done it before multiple times. You have a team that can build technology like no one else. And you have a team that can scale businesses from zero to a thousand in no time. And we've proven that we can create billion-dollar operations because managing operations of such a business is also um, not really trivial. Um, so we have a risk profile now that is much better than five, six, seven years ago. We have a business um, uh, idea or a vision that is a global vision, not a regional vision. So that by itself could enlarge your scope, um, who you address. Um, and yeah, I think now it's up to us to create a list of potential investors and talk to them. And the good thing is now they start listening to us. We're not like one of a thousand that sends them emails because they've heard of our story probably and, and very likely. Or one of least, your success stories at least. At least, at least, at least uh, we can have enough people that could make a good intro um, now given our, our most recent story. And uh, I think also, and I would like to stress that actually, um, I think we have had more failures than successes and that's why we're successful now. I think that's the important uh, gist of, of, I would say, my, corp, my, uh, my venture life is um, if we had not done the first, if I had not done the first uh, bankruptcy in Germany in 2000 and uh, pivoted then based on that and recreated and raised funding and closed the business and if I didn't have a trade sale that was actually sealed and then on the day of the notary public they exchanged the CEO of the acquiring company in the US and he, the new CEO called off the deal. If we did not have all these experiences, we would not be successful today, right? It's as, as simple as that. If you're comfortable talking just a bit about your new venture, you said you have a team, right? You're bringing actually your It's me, myself, and I, and my co-founder. Yeah. So you brought the tech yeah, co-founder with you. So we left together yeah, okay. because of this vision. We feel that with our skills, with our capabilities, with our background, with our um, both ethnical and religious background, and with our really... Um, ability to create something at scale, we felt that it's an obligation for us to venture into what is called the global Islamic economy. Because if you look at this segment, people are very, very, very hungry to see success coming from their own segment. Right? And I think we have what it takes to be successful in this segment. And if we didn't do it, we, we would probably be wrong. Right. It's a big market. So from a commercial perspective, there's a very big likelihood for success. Um, from an execution perspective, if we can't do it, then who would do it? Right. So we have to do it. And so this is actually one of the key reasons why we then decided to move on from uh, the Altayar group and go back to the roots and bootstrap a business. So we're sitting here in a co-working space now bootstrapping. <laughs> And I like it. I, every time someone asks me, what are you doing? I tell them, like, technically, I'm unemployed, <laughs> which is kind of uh, a strange word to use for me. But um, 
Yeah, no, we're working actually on a concept for Hajj and Umrah. We want to create a global platform for Hajj and Umrah that helps people actually improve the experience of Hajj and Umrah pre-booking, uh, post-booking, but also during their stay the in Mecca and Medina. Yes. The overall user experience of Hajj and Umrah is just a disaster when you look at it from a, from a tech uh, travel perspective or travel tech perspective. It's a disaster. And I think the market is now ripe for disruption and uh, this is exactly what we're planning to do. That sounds very interesting. Looking forward to So I'd like to transition now a bit about you. You mentioned your slip disc before, and yeah. I imagine that might have to do with your almost 24-7 work. If you had a chance to shut down and recharge your battery, or actually you'd have to recharge your batteries if you're working so hard, what do you tend to do? Okay, let me tell you something, my friend. <laughs> you don't? <laughs> let me tell you one thing. When you have four children... The oldest being seven. Um, switch off is not really an option. <laughs> no, um, jokes aside, I think I'm extremely privileged that I don't need to split between what people call my work and my life. For me, it's, it's the same. I exist because I want to have impact on people, right? And I do that through my entrepreneurial work. I do that through my role modeling for my children. I do that for being a good husband. Um, I try at least. <laughs> if you ask my wife, she would probably tell you <laughs> a couple of stories she should not. Now, um, I think the, for me, relaxing means you take your brain waves to different levels, right? So when I'm at work, I'm extremely focused and I try to really get into the topic, get into the people, try to inspire people, move people, shake people and, and push the bar all the time. When you get then to your environment where you have children surrounding you, automatically they take your brain waves from the level that they are at work to a much more relaxed level. Even if they stress you out by shouting, doing whatever, but your brain levels are not on this high, super high IQ paced, um, um, fast paced level. And I think this already takes you down. I'm, I try very, very, in a very disciplined way to not spend weekends uh, working when I say working, it means working on documents or working on very concrete. I always have my mobile and I always push emails, etc. But what I've started doing actually recently is, is when I get home, I put my mobile on silent and on silence and I drop it on my desk in the office at home and just leave it there for a while at least, two hours, three hours, four hours. At the end of the night, you'll still end up looking at it. Yeah, of course. Like before I go to bed, I look at it and I make sure that everything is fine and then... Um, but, but I'm not permanently on it anymore, which was the case before. And frankly... Um, for me it doesn't make a difference it's more for my family that they see that I have 100% attention um, I think that's more important than for myself I don't need a lot of time to completely switch off I get bored so when I'm completely switched off my brain thinks about writing a book or doing some other stuff that adds <laughs> value to mankind um, but it's, it's just a privilege to have children surrounding you that take you to a, diff to a different space well, that's very nice I, I never thought of that Brainwave, that's a very interesting way to look at it, where you don't need to switch off, just adjust yeah. brainwave. Take, take a look at um, what they call power nap, right? Power nap is nothing else than taking your brainwaves from alpha, gamma, etc. to a different level, right? And then you do, do just take your, your body and mind to a 10-minute break in a power nap, and you're fit for another six hours, four to six hours. It's the same concept with your children. They just are louder than a power nap. Another question, who would you say was a role model or a hero for you? Look, it's, it's super tough. I think, there, I wouldn't say superhero. There are a couple of entrepreneurial personalities that I admire. Um, people that have created something that lasts and people that then made the right choice towards humanity. One of them is Bill Gates with the Bill and Melinda Gates uh, Foundation. I think he's created something that is amazing. And I think many, many rich people in our region should take this as an example and do the same. Um, a second one is Richard Branson, someone who's super inspirational in terms of how to lead people and how to be a visionary leader. You have people like Jack Ma that never gave up. Um, you have people like Steve Jobs who actually had to fail in order to grow. Um, so there's a couple of people that I really frequently look at their stories. So if you ask me which biography do you read, that's exactly the people's biographies that I actually read and learn a lot from. Um, but when you look for heroes, you find them in your direct vicinity. One of my biggest heroes is actually a, a guy called Abdul Ghani. I always tell this story when I speak publicly. It's, uh, 
he, we, I hired him, I think, in Desado, first time, as a driver, right? And uh, Abdul Ghani always smiles. He probably is uh, the guy with the least income in, in any business that I have created, but he always smiles. And one day he came to me, now in, uh, in Tajawal, he came to me and said, hey, boss, can you, uh, do you allow me to put a fridge in the office? So he talked to companies here in Dubai and talked them into giving him a free fridge with a glass door, sponsor it. So he got a fridge. I allowed it, obviously. Like, who am I to not allow it? I said, yeah, of course, feel free. So he got a fridge. He started buying stuff like yogurt, sandwiches, etc., putting it in the fridge and selling it. Within one month, he doubled his salary. And you know what it means when someone like that who's feeding a family in India doubles his salary overnight? It means he starts feeding more than two families, three families, four families in India. He creates a future for his children in terms of education, etc. PP. And he was so persistent at doing it. And he doesn't give up. And even a, a physical disease that he had, etc. He kept fighting and he kept on fighting and he's back now. And that's a hero for me. That's really a hero. Like in, in all its truest sense of word, that's a hero. Because frankly, it's easy when you make your 30, 40, 50, 60,000 dirhams a month. It's easy to say, oh, you know, I have a hero who's called blah, blah, blah. No, but like if you look at someone who's who wakes up every morning figuring out, okay, how do I feed my children that I only see three weeks in a year? That's for me a hero, right? And that's, I wouldn't say humbles you. It, it just puts everything back in perspective, everything. So, Abdul Ghani Sayed, he's my superhero. Yeah. <laughs> so, do you have any personal routines or habits you tend to do, whether at work or at home? Any certain thing that every day or every week you tend to always do? Okay, again, routines. Um, when you have children that are small, you have to have routines. Otherwise, they don't function. <laughs> and for me, the routine is that you wake up very early, around 6 a.m. or before. You wake up your children. You make sure they're ready. You drive them to school. So my morning return uh, routine is that I spent an hour with my children in the car. I refuse to put them on these buses. Uh, we live in, uh, I live in Maidan. Uh, close to Maidan Hotel. My two kids are in the German school in Academic City. And my third kid, my daughter, is in a nursery in Um Suqaim. So it's an opposite size of town. So I go in the morning, I drop the two kids in the German school, and we spend a, a good time, a quality time, actually, in the car. And then I take my little daughter, who's three years old, to the nursery in Um Suqaim, and which takes then about 40 minutes from the German school to Um Suqaim, from Academic City. And that's actually the best time of the day. And this morning routine lets me bond with my children in a way that I think I would not have otherwise if I was a standard, you know, wake up, read your newspaper, drink your coffee and go to work. Um, usually I make sure that I, le I end my office time or my, my meeting times at 6 p.m. and head back home because it's absolutely religious for me to take my kids to bed. So I put them in bed, I read bedtime stories and Quran to them and make sure that they fall asleep with me being the last person they have seen. Um, obviously, I have to compete with my wife for this role <laughs> because she enjoys doing it as well. But I try to make sure that my kids see me before they sleep. Sometimes I have to travel, but that's, that's fine. Um, that's the general routine for me is centered around wake-up time and sleeping time for children and is centered around my coffee machine. So my routine is probably I have to have at least two coffees per hour or I don't function. Per hour? Yep. Um, you'll see me very grumpy if I don't have coffee. <laughs> Um, so if you look at my, my desk at Tejawal, for example, before I left, I had my coffee machine on my desk and I would press it all the time. I'm kind of concerned now. We didn't have coffee before this. This morning I had two coffees before I left the house. Okay. And then I had one coffee in the car and then I came here. And what does your typical workday look like when you're at Tejawal? Any company. Let's not focus on Tejawal because I think it, it's no difference. I would say I spend, as a founder slash CEO of a business, I spend about 80% of my time interviewing and meeting people. So either I interview people or I meet people. Interview for concrete roles or I meet people just for the sake of meeting them to figure out whether there's any value that I can add to their life or they can add to my life. Um, even if there's no one to hide. Even now I meet random people uh, of whom I think we could add value to each other. Not now, maybe in six months, whatever it is, but it's good to meet people. I spend a lot of time coaching people, mentoring people. Um, in the business and outside the business. Um, because at the end of the day, um, I, 
I've, I've defined that for my life. And I think people are different there, but that's what gives me energy. It gives me energy to say that, you know, if I step out of this life and I have made zero dollars, but I've had impact on a thousand people that took a little bit of what I was able to transmit, um, then I think I've had a good life. Right? Obviously, it starts with the family, with my children. But if people who worked with me come back and want to work with me again, then it means something was good about what we were doing. That's very nice. It also hints back at what you learned at McKinsey, seeing how they dealt with the onboarding, really yes. understanding the candidate, really understanding the person. Okay, so we'll move on to our rapid-fire questions. Could be short answers up yeah. to you. What book do you gift most often? I generally don't give books in general. The only book I've ever gifted was Quran a couple of times. And, uh, but that's, that's a religious discussion we should, we should probably not have. But um, that's, for me, the most impressive book because it's, it's very mystical in the way it's written, but there is no single life situation that you come across where you don't find a reference to yeah, it. Yeah, there's learnings. There's always a learning in there. Um, that's why I refer to that. But other than that, I'm not a friend of, of gifting books nowadays uh, because it, I think there's a big likelihood that it lands in a corner and no one, no one benefits from it. I'd rather give someone a link to a YouTube video of a TEDx, uh, TEDx talk or anything like that. I think people would benefit more. Is there a specific talk? Nothing, nothing specific. I like, I like people to be self-reflective, like figure out how you can shape. How can you become a shaper rather than a victim? That's, that's the topic that I like most probably. If you could post a message on a billboard on Sheikh Zayed Road, either going to Abu Dhabi or coming back to Dubai, what, what message would you like the people of the UAE to see? The people of the UAE? Or even tourists coming and going. <laughs> There's a couple of messages, I think. Um, what strikes me most is I want people to understand that they don't have time. So I'll put something on how much time do you have left? Like a memento mori? How much time do you have left? If you know that you'll die tomorrow, what would you do? And I think this is what you need to focus the rest of your life on. Like, what would you do if tomorrow was your last day? I think this is the, the thing I would put on. The second thing I would put in any city in the Arabic world, I think, is don't be a victim. Stop being a victim. We're no victims. We always tend to say, oh, this doesn't work because of someone else. Shifting the blame. It's either America that is the reason for us being such a failure, or it's, uh, I don't know, our competitor. It's, it's, there's always someone whose fault it is that I'm bad. No, you're no victim. Take your life in your own hand and shape it. And shape others as well. And uh, I think these are the two key things that are lacking in this uh, in this environment. Do you have any personal hobbies you tend to explore? <laughs> Children! <Are> you... <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any hobbies you engage with them? Um, I've started teaching my, my older son, Hamza. I've, just, I've started to uh, work with him a little bit on coding. Oh. Um, very, very... not. Co I wouldn't... Yes, I mean, he's learning with, with uh, some tools, but... It's all about understanding schemas and understanding uh, algorithmic thinking, etc. Because frankly, I, I've, I've, uh, I've watched a speech by a so-called futurist. And uh, I've read a lot about these topics as well. In 10 years, our kids won't have a job if they don't code. It's very simple. Like No one will have a job if you're not into the, really the digital space. There's no lawyers anymore. There's no surgeons will be machines. The surgeon actually will sit in a room watching machines to not make mistakes. Yeah. Deep learning. When you look at one billion images, you being wrong is probably zero 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 point one percent of what a doctor would do, right? Um, so that's something that I'm very keen on. In terms of hobbies, it's uh, it's tough. It's tough. I've uh, I vowed that I will start uh, doing some sports again. So I uh, in the last couple of months I lost thirty pounds to get ready for that um, without sports. So now I need to do <laughs> sports um, to get back in shape. I think that's, that's I, think, I think that's my next hobby. Okay, that, that's a good one. That's actually a good, healthy one. What's your wish or dream initiative for Dubai? Okay, I need to rewind a little bit, go back to Tejawal. In Tejawal, I created a program called the uh, um, Jadara Talent Accelerator. Yes. So what is that? Basically, what I witnessed since I came to, to the region in 2003 is that you have, you have a lot of people that graduate and do stuff and they're not ready for work, right? Especially locals. 
either Emirati nationals, Kuwaiti nationals, Saudi nationals. They graduate from good or bad business schools, universities, etc., and they're not ready for jobs. They take on jobs in governments most of the times. When you ask why you take jobs in governments, they say, ah, oh, it's secure, you don't work a lot, blah, 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 right? People are brought up here with very little aspiration. And I know I'm generalizing, and I'm stereotyping here, but on purpose. Um, and this Jadara program, basically what we said is we interviewed more than a 1,000 people and selected 25 to attend this program. In this program, we teamed up with very, very big players such as Facebook, Google, Twitter, Utah City, uh, MISC Foundation in Saudi is supporting us, um, uh, DFF uh, or DFA also we're, we're partnering with. Um, and the aim here is to have 25 people for six months in an environment such as Tajawal, where they work on concrete projects, startup projects, as well as on departments. They get trainings worth probably $200,000 in this time. They get mentorship, inspiration. At the end of these six, of these six months, they will probably be very, very good tech-enabled people to go out there and then have impact on people they work with. I think my wish here is we need an initiative where we press reset for the young population here. I think we need to, as, as a society here, we need to think of, you know, not everything here is bright and superb, as we always try to, to say. We need to look behind this super nice, uh, I wouldn't call it facade, it's more than a facade, but take people and tell them, for example, you're not allowed when you graduate to work for government. For the first three to five years, you have to work in the private sector to really acquire skills that otherwise you will never acquire if you straight move into government. And government here is special. Government is more like a corporate uh, setup with an executive office that actually runs the show here in a very very uh, CEO-style way, right? But still, I think it's beneficial for Emiratis to mingle with people like me, with people like... Uh, the founders of Kareem with people. And frankly, I haven't managed to hire Emiratis in Tajawal because whenever you interview people, you, you don't get to interview people. When you interview people, they don't want to work. They don't want to work in such an environment. They'd rather go to an Emirates MBD or to government or to any other institution where they know there will be a manager from day one after graduation, etc. PP. And I think, although it seems to be something nice to do that, I think in the long run, this will not be very helpful for the overall society here. We need to get people to be attached to, to, to managers or entrepreneurs that actually care about this region. And I do fundamentally care. And I'd like to take, and you can ask a couple of people that work with, with, uh, with us in Tajawal and other environments, we really care. We want to build talents for this region to take this region out of the misery that it's in. We want to build a future where everyone here is, is contributing to world success, not only to your personal wealth. And I think this is not possible if you're in your cocoon. You need to mingle, you need to figure out what initiative to start in order to get people out of their cocoon, out of their comfort zone, because this is the best way to grow. Remember, I told you at one point I decided that you know, being the smartest might be comfortable and being like the fastest and the strongest, etc was very comf comfortable and I earned a lot of money, but at one point I decided, you know, I need to get out of this comfort zone into an environment where people actually show me how limited I am and start growing me, right? And I think this cannot be done from inside. It needs to be done with the help of, of other people. And this is kind of relevant, the final question. What piece of advice would you give your 20-year-old self? Because what you're saying right now is being the mentor to these people. Yeah. So if you could mentor yourself, you're 20 years old. <laughs> Again, that's a topic that I stress every time I appear publicly. I say your worst motivators are two things. One of them is fear, and the second thing is money. Never ever do things because you think it will generate wealth. Do things when you feel you're passionate about them, and do things where you feel you can learn stuff. Money will follow. If you're excellent at what you're doing because you're passionate, because you give it all, money will follow. At one point, money will come, no matter what. If you're excellent, money will come. So don't let yourself be guided like me by having to create a startup in your early days that you want to sell to an American company very, very quickly and make millions of dollars. Even if it happens, you won't be happy. You will only start becoming happy when you feel that you're adding value to people's life. You found that purpose or passion. Do you have any last words of wisdom for the general listeners? Your takeaway? Your legacy will be defined, I think, by the children you leave behind. Wow. 
true words of wisdom. <laughs> I'm serious. Like you can do whatever. You can create businesses. You can create whatever. But the massive, the, the biggest impact that I've had in my life is on the four little creatures surrounding me every day. And you live for them. You stop living for yourself. You start living for someone else. And I think this, this profoundly changes you as a person. Do you have a place listeners can go learn more information? I'm not sure if you have anything to plug or to, if you want people to get in touch with you or to know about your new venture. The easiest way to get in touch with me is to follow me on LinkedIn, to connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, and that's Muhammad Shabib. If you just look for Muhammad Shabib, M-U-H-A-M-M-A-D-C-H-B-I-B, you'll find me. And we'll have that in the show notes. I respond to every single message I get on LinkedIn, and it's hundreds per day, you can imagine. But I take the time to respond as soon as I can. Um, and I like interacting with the most different uh, kinds of people. Oh, that's great. Thank you for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. You can find this episode's show notes on our website at streamsofprogress.com slash Manal. That's M-A-N-A-L. We'd love to connect with you, so follow us on Facebook and Instagram or reach out via our website. If you can please take a few minutes to give us an honest rating on iTunes, this really makes a huge difference and improves our ability to reach more people in the UAE and beyond. We hope you enjoyed the show and look forward to seeing you next week on Streams of Progress.